Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Medicus podcast. I am today's host, Raj Ramani, a second-year medical student at the Loyola University of Chicago Strich School of Medicine. Today, I'm excited to discuss the field of physical medicine rehabilitation with Dr. Leslie Reifert. Dr. Reidberg is a general physiatrist with a primary clinical interest in neuromuscular disorders and medically complex rehabilitation. She has special interest in residency and medical student education and holds Rose roles as assistant professor at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine and as the Henry and Monica Best Medical Student Education Chair and Assistant Residency Program Director at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Dr. Reidberg is a graduate of Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine and completed her residency at the Rehab Institution of Chicago, now called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Welcome to the show, Dr. Freiberg. Thank you for having me today. Before we get into why you do decided physiatry and your kind of day-to-day in physiatry, could you tell us a little bit about how you decided medicine? Sure. My father is an orthopedic spine surgeon, so I grew up hearing about his day at work. So he would come home and talk about the spine surgeries, the fractures, the traumas, and it was so interesting hearing how he used his surgical procedures to put people back together. But what really interested me was the diagnosis and the workup, and how did these patients do? So I went into medical school thinking that I wanted to do something similar to that, something with bones, muscles, and nerves, but I wasn't really sure what I wanted that to look like, as I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a surgeon. On your course through medical school, did you ever change your mind or you were always pretty set on something musculoskeletal? If you had, if you told me that I needed to pick something other than the musculoskeletal system, I really found cardiology to be really interesting. The heart is a pump and, you know, how the heart is such an important part of the entire body system. I also liked rheumatology because it has a little bit of overlap in terms of uh, the muscles and the joints, but really thinking about how these illnesses affect the entire system and how complicated things can be in terms of the diagnosis and the presentation. So many times uh, it's a puzzle trying to figure out exactly what's going on. Gotcha. I asked that question partly for myself as well, because while I'm also very interested in musculoskeletal systems, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what other things that I would uh, resonate with as I go through. Did you know about physiatry before you started medical school? I had never heard of the field of PM&R until I was a first-year medical student. So I'm like many who found it uh, throughout their medical school journey. As a first-year medical student, the Northwestern PM&R Interest Group held a session where the chief residents from the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago came over and gave a talk. I, of course, had no interest in going because I didn't know what PM&R was. And my friend who went to medical school to be a spinal cord injury physiatrist said, hey, Leslie, let's go to this lunch session. And I said, why should I go? And she said, well, they have free pizza. And so, like many of us, I came across the field because of a lunch meeting. And really, I sat there and listened to the chief residents talk, and it really resonated with me. You know, the fact that it's non-surgical, it's very hands-on, it's a very thoughtful approach to patient care, focusing on function, and using that to um, really think about quality of life while still looking at the nerves and the muscles and the bones. That's really funny. I, I actually have a very similar story. I'd never heard of physiatry ever. Uh, I was on campus until 6 p.m. and there's free, there was like free pizza on the room next door. So I, I dropped in. Um, I was actually going to touch on this maybe a little later, but I was curious. Have you noticed that certain personality types gravitate towards PM&R? Yeah, it's something that I notice now in that the, the people who are drawn to the field tend to be more laid back, down to earth, very patient-centric, good communicators. Uh, and I think there are certainly a wide variety of personalities and personality types within the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation. 
but I feel like we all get along pretty darn well. Yeah, I uh, noticed that quite a bit on my uh, short experience at Shirley Ryan as well. Just uh, as housekeeping for my guests, I keep saying physiatry sometimes. It also is PM&R, physical medicine and rehabilitation is what it stands for. So all those words mean the same thing. I just want to share that from a guest that might not be aware. Dr. Reisberg, according to the Academic Association of PM&R, I got a definition and I was wondering if after you listen to it, you can tell me if you'd like to add anything or take away from it. According to the American Association of PM&R, physical medicine and re rehabilitation, also known as physiatry, is a medical specialty that emphasizes the prevention, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation of patients of people disabled by disease, disorder, or injury. It is one of the newer subspecialty areas of medicine that manages a diversity of conditions involving the nervous and musculoskeletal systems and focuses on function, independence, and quality of life. The diet provides integrated multidisciplinary care aimed at the recovery of the whole person by addressing the individual's physical, emotional, med medical, vocational, and social needs. The diet is unique among medical specialties in that it is an area of expertise that is in the functioning of the whole patient as compared with a focus on an organ system or systems. A doctor specializes in physical medicine rehabilitation is called a physiatrist. So what about that definition do you think is accurate? Need a little bit more rounding out? Kind of summarize for our guests that might be more interested in the field. I think it's a, an excellent definition because it really talks about the diversity of diagnoses, the diversity of patient types, stresses, the focus on the whole person and quality of life, but also really looks at the long-term relationships that we de develop with our patients over time. I think the hard part about defining what we do in the field is that our field is so diverse. So I came in to the field of PM&R thinking that I would do outpatient sports medicine, and I finished residency and fell in love with inpatient rehabilitation with a focus on patients with medically complex and neurologic conditions, so kind of very opposite ends of the spectrum. But what really unites the two is if you have a patient come in who's an athlete, a high-level athlete who has some ankle instability, you know, what on physical exam is really leading to that? Is it uh, weakness? Is it range of motion impairments? Uh, is it um, pain limited, right? And so it's using a good hands-on physical exam, getting a good history, using imaging, uh, and then figuring out what the underlying biomechanical problem is, and then how you can address that with medications, with therapy, with modalities, right? So it's still thinking about what's what is limiting the patient and what are their goals? Is their goal to get back to high-level sport, right? Um, and then in many of my patients, it's really thinking about what the long-term implications of a life-changing illness or injury will take. So, for example, I, one of my first patients after I graduated from residency was a young woman with a spinal cord injury, and she has complete, complete paraplegia. And so she was, we worked together for six weeks in the acute care, in the acute uh, hospitalization for her rehabilitation got her from the point where she couldn't even roll around in bed and now she's independent at the wheelchair level but you know 10 years have gone by she's still a wheelchair user but I've been with her every step of the way as she has gone back to school and got her social workers degree as she has gotten engaged as she went through a high-risk pregnancy so we've been adjusting her medications looking at her um, insurance issues looking at her medical issues and how to adjust all that as she's out there living her life right and it's still about what are her goals what is her function what is important in her her life and making sure that I give her the tools to be able to do that. I think for me, that's a really good connection to how a physiatrist can maintain that long-term quality of life because just reading the definition, I had, I was kind of thinking maybe someone had a sports injury and they're rehabilitating up to the point where they can walk independently. I guess I haven't seen enough complex patients to make that connection for how, how long they might need that continued maintenance of quality of life. Lifetime for many of our patients. If you think about our patients uh, with cerebral palsy, for example, it's not a disorder of childhood anymore. It's a disorder of your entire life. So I have many adults with cerebral palsy who will be working with me until I retire, I'm sure. 
as treatment options improve, do you notice any shift in the patient populations with certain diseases that you have seen? Patients with muscular dystrophy, for example, might have had a traditionally lower life expectancy, but with improvement in medication, they might be seeing better lifespans. So I was curious if you had seen patients like that where traditionally you might have only seen them in the pediatric population, but now you see them in the adult or adolescent population. I agree. I am starting to see more adults who have some of the muscular dystrophy or myotonic dystrophy diagnoses, which is really cool. We know a lot more about non-invasive ventilation, and there's new treatments coming up, especially for things like spinal muscular atrophy. Can you tell us, as a general physicist at an academic medical center, what a day in your life looks like? What I love about the field of PM&R is that there are so many different options in terms of what your day can look like. So I'm primarily inpatient, so I get to work, I meet up with my resident, potentially my medical student, and we go on rounds and see kind of 10 to 12 hospitalized patients who are undergoing intensive rehabilitation. And so during that, we may stop and check in with the nurses, or we may get to see the patient during one of their therapy sessions so we can see them actively participating in physical therapy, occupational therapy, or speech therapy, which is the most fun for me because I really enjoy getting to see them in action. Getting to see a person trying to walk really gives you some good clues as to why they struggle with walking. Is it pain? Is it weakness? Is it spasticity? So it really helps in kind of planning a rehabilitation course. After rounds, I generally have a lot of meetings. Uh, working in medical education, I'm meeting with people over at the medical school or internally within our residency program. And then one day a week, I do an outpatient clinic. And so that's where I see my long-term outpatients. Some of them are people that have done inpatient rehabilitation with me previously, and some of them are people presenting with other disabling conditions who either have, um, have had a physiatrist who has retired or are establishing care um, for a different condition. So in the outpatient world, I see a lot of people who have had strokes or spinal cord injuries, um, some people with neuromuscular disorders such as uh, muscular dystrophy, for example, uh, and then I have um, uh, some patients with peripheral neuropathies, nerve injuries, a uh, wide variety of diagnoses. I'm happy to see almost any uh, condition in my outpatient clinic. And then one day a week I do uh, electrodiagnostic testing or EMG testing, which is a nerve and muscle test. All residents going through a PM&R residency will do EMG training, and it's a great way to really think about that function, how function correlates with anatomy, because we are looking at the course of the nerve, shocking the nerve and seeing how that response travels down the leg or the arm, for example, or we're actually testing the muscle and seeing how the underlying muscle is functions. So it's a great way to stay hands-on and really tied in with the anatomy. So I have a, a teaching EMG clinic once a week as well. That's definitely much more diverse than I was expecting. I was thinking more, mostly inpatient and walking in and all the other parts of the team care. Would you say it's pretty typical that you get to see the patient not necessarily just in this office setting, but actually going through the exercises? Is that a normal thing even at rural outpatient centers and other smaller medical centers as well? In the hospital setting, the therapy has to take place relatively close to the patient's room. And so uh, any inpatient physiatrist can make the effort to walk over and see patients participating in therapy. In the outpatient world, it's a little bit more tricky. It depends on where your therapy takes place. In our institution, um, the therapy and the physician outpatient clinics are on the same floor, but they're often coming back on different days to do therapy. So it can be hard to see them even though they're geographically close. In many centers, the physical therapy is located off-site, and so you may never get to see them actively in therapy, but the therapists are required to send reports back to the physician uh, for insurance purposes to show exactly what they've been working on and what the progress looks like. Gotcha. Um, that, that kind of leads into my next question. Just because there are so many different ways the career kind of day-to-day -day can look like depending on the setting, could you talk a bit about how, initially as a general physiatrist, how your practice setting can affect your day? And then under that, for example, private practice versus academic, inpatient versus outpatient, and even BA versus international. Yes. 
So depending on your setting, your job can look very different. Some physiatrists do primarily consults at skilled nursing facilities, which is a great schedule because you can go perform your consults kind of at whatever time of the day you would like to. Some physiatrists do primarily consulting work, so they are working in the acute care hospital and they're seeing the patients when they're hospitalized, when they're in the ICU, when they're on the medical or surgical floors. And that is a great opportunity because you get to see someone very early on in their uh, illness or after a trauma, so a spinal cord injured patient who's still in the neuro ICU. Uh, and physiatrists can actually provide a lot of medical insight and medical management uh, for these early patients. Um, some people do all outpatient, um, for example, mm -hmm. people who do sports medicine, musculoskeletal medicine, pain management. And so they're primarily seeing patients in the outpatient clinic and they're doing a lot of physical examination, diagnosis, workup, and also oftentimes doing procedures. So this is joint injections under ultrasound or spine injections under fluoroscopy. This this is a great option for people who really enjoy um, procedures. It's a very hands-on approach and gives you some variety to your day-to-day -day practice because sometimes you're in injection suite, sometimes you're in the clinic, so it can mix things up a little bit. And then there's also the outpatient management of a lot of the neurologic conditions that we see. Someone who has a stroke, for example, may need to see a physiatrist for years and years and years. And physiatrists can be very useful in managing the spasticity that comes with these neurologic conditions. And that can include um, botulinum toxin or Botox injections. And that is another procedural scale where you figure out anatomically which muscles are causing functional impairments based on where you see the tightness. And you can inject um, toxin directly into those muscles, which can help relax the muscles and lead to improved function. Um, another example is um, baclofen pump placement. So a patient can undergo surgical placement of a baclofen pump, which is then managed by a physiatrist in terms of refills and titrating doses. So that's another good way to manage spasticity and another way that physiatrists can be hands-on with procedures. And then you really have to think about the setting because many uh, people who practice in community settings or in private practices often do a combination of many of those options. So they may do consults at the acute care hospital and then once they're discharged, they may be in charge of their care in the hospital setting, uh, in the inpatient re rehabilitation setting, and then once they're discharged, they may manage them in the outpatient setting. And so you can certainly see patients across the spectrum, which I think is one of the best things about PMR is getting to see or follow that entire transition. And even some of our physicians who do primarily sports medicine or pain management sometimes will cover rehabilitation units on the weekends. So a lot of variability in how practices look, but I think that's really a strength because pretty much anyone can find a good home within the field of physical medicine rehabilitation. Yeah, it's the, just the breadth of what a, a physical medicine doc can do is really astonishing, especially because I think as a medical student, I don't get as much exposure as I, as I would like to the field, uh, considering all the different paths of medicine that it touches with. Could you touch a little bit also on, because I know it's a relatively new field, if there is any international kind of general day-to-day -day, so that might be for physiatry? So there are definitely international physiatry organizations. So there is absolutely uh, around the world interest in function and recovery and rehabilitation and disability. There are residency programs in physical medicine and rehabilitation around the world as well. In terms of international opportunities, you know, there are questions about physiatry involvement in global health, and I think that's an up-and-coming field where there are lots of communities in the world that don't have access to a lot of medical resources, and that also includes uh, disability access. And so the more that we can get physiatrists working on an international scale, the better. I was curious if there were, just because there's so many different parts of medicine that physiatry interacts with, if there were ever there were ever times that you would interact with other physicians for some reason who didn't quite understand your role in the patient's care. Um, is there any misconceptions that you thought would be helpful to dispel? 
I think that I'm lucky in that I'm coming from a standalone rehabilitation hospital that has excellent relationships with our primary hospital. And so the vast majority of physicians there really have a great sense of who we are and what we do as a field. Um, if you leave the Midwest, there are many areas where uh, PM&R is not as well known or not, not as well respected. And I think really if you're trying to establish that relationship, it's really figuring out what types of patients that physician sees and talking through specifics of how you can aid in the management of that patient. So, um, for example, if you have a, a patient who is hospitalized with a medically complex condition such as COVID pneumonia as a recent example. So early on in the pandemic, as physiatrists, we uh, were quick to jump up and say, hey, we can help with this diagnosis. It's not a classic rehab diagnosis. It's not a stroke. It's not a sports injury, right? Um, but when you think about it, patients who have severe COVID pneumonia are hospitalized for a long period of time. They're intubated often multiple times. They have a critical illness in ICU states. And so we knew as, as a field that there was a lot that we could offer for this patient population. So we've been in conversations with the neurologist and the pulmonologist and figuring out, you know, how as physiatrists we can help in this pandemic. So um, we actually started a COVID rehabilitation unit in early April, and we've been uh, served, I think, almost 200 patients with COVID pneumonia in the Chicagoland area. And there is a lot we can offer, even though it's not a classic rehab diagnosis. So we can manage the fatigue, the endurance, the weakness, the balance, the cognitive impairments, the dysphagia, the nerve injuries, the muscle weakness. There's really a lot as an interdisciplinary team that we can help with. And I'm curious for uh, fellowships as well and uh, subspecialties in PM&R, just because there seem to be so many. Um, is there any overlap, for example, between, let's say, like a cancer rehab specialist and an internist or uh, an oncologist or a brain fellow specialist and a neurologist? And I ask that for maybe students that are interested in the musculoskeletal system, but they also want to be a particular expert in one area of the body and how they can make that distinction, for example, between pursuing an internal medicine residency going that route versus PM&R and going that route. Yeah, so if you have an interest in a specific um, subspecialty and really being a subspecialist, there are actually pathways within PM&R where you can pursue that. So, for example, if you really have an interest in neurology and neuro rehab, you can do a fellowship in spinal cord injury or traumatic brain injury and then primarily see that diagnosis only or primarily see that diagnosis depending on your practice setting. So and there's a big difference between a traumatic brain injury physician and a neurologist or a spinal cord injury rehab physician and a neurologist um, or really any physiatrist who sees patients with neurologic diagnoses. One way I like to think about it is um, a good example is a patient with multiple cirrhosis, right? So every patient with multiple cirrhosis should have a neurologist. The neurologist is super important, right? So the neurologist is going to confirm the diagnosis. They're the one who's going to be doing, you know, the MRI, the lumbar puncture. They're going to determine, you know, what type of MS this is, what's the best medication to prevent MS flares, right? And so they're going to be up to date on the latest and greatest research and, and all of that. So then you have this patient who has MS and they're on the right medications. Well, what happens when they get bladder symptoms related to their MS? What happens when they get pain related to their MS? What happens when they have this spasticity, this muscle tightness that's limiting their function? What happens when they need an assistive device or a wheelchair? And that's when it becomes really important to have that physiatrist participating in their care as well, because we are the best at dealing with the symptoms related to the MS, the impairments related to the MS. So as a neurologist, some of them are pretty well-versed and comfortable handling a lot of that. But most of them are more interested in the underlying diagnosis and the workup and the treatment as opposed to the day-to-day -day functional impairments. And that's where the physiatrist can really come in. 
when it comes to traumatic brain injury, for example, um, the neurologists are really good at the diagnosis and the imaging and figuring out exactly, um, and the neurosurgeons are obviously very involved in, in the brain traumas as well, um, but really for the long-term management of day-to-day life in someone with a traumatic brain injury, a physiatrist is much better served to manage um, agitation, behavioral issues, uh, the sleep issues, the appetite issues, um, all of the kind of concussion-type symptoms that people can have. And so we really have that different kind of functional approach to management as opposed to the diagnosis and workup. Um, so we work kind of one-on-one with patients longer term. Gotcha. So it's definitely, I think that's helpful, the distinction between it's the same patient with the same issue, but the focus is either on the medical, the medical issues, the physiological issues, or the symptom, symptomological and quality of life issues. Yes. And another example would be someone with um, hip arthritis, for example, right? So take it back to the musculoskeletal system. So if you have hip pain and you go to a surgeon, the surgeon is trained to do the surgery to fix the arthritis, right? And they're going to do a great job of it. But you know, has this patient tried all the non-surgical options? Have they done physical therapy? Have they done, um, have they talked about weight loss? Have they done medical management? Have they done, you know, heat and ice and modalities and things like that? And so oftentimes a patient is better served to have a physiatrist to do the non-surgical management, the workup and the diagnosis. And then once the physiatrist says, hey, this patient needs surgery, send them over to the surgeon who does the surgery and then sends them back to the rehab position. So there's oftentimes a role to have both types of physicians with the same patient population. Gotcha. And then this is just a question I, I had when I was uh, at the Silly Ability Lab. I noticed there was just all of these really cool gadgets and, you know, just tools that, like, that were available to the patients. And I, I've never seen any of this in public. Is that because it's an academic medical center and all those are still used for research or are those available at other hospitals too? And I, I was just curious, like, how accessible are those types of tools uh, to a normal physiatrist? Um, it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're on rounds and you see the patient has kind of all these gadgets that they're using in their daily life to get dressed, for example, those are commercially available. You can order them on it on Amazon. Uh, they're used in rehab units around the country. And so some examples of that would be just a classic old reach or grabber. One of the main reasons that people fall in hospitals is trying to reach things that are you know, too far, so they're reaching and falling. So just a good old reach or grabber, you can reach across the room, grab your phone, grab, you know, your shirt, whatever you need over there. Um, we have like a long-handled shoehorn to help a patient put a shoe on. We have a dressing stick where you can kind of use it to help pull your pant leg up or down. We have a great tool called the sock aid. And so you put the sock onto a tube and then use the tube to pull the sock onto your leg. So all sorts, of, I mean, it's, it's great. Whoever invented the, this is very clever. So it's those great occupational therapists out there. I have nothing but respect for them. Um, and lots of feeding tools, lots of great options for our patients with Parkinson's, for example or who have motor or visual deficits um, with weighted spoons or thicker forks or all sorts of things. Um, great adaptive equipment for people who have communication deficits. So if you think about our patients with um, ALS is a great example who lose their motor skills, but their cognitive skills are normal. So we can keep those patients communicating for a long time. They can, um, when they still have some upper extremity strength, they can, you know, use typing or boards that will then speak, uh, speak what they're trying to say. And then some patients will actually record their voice and then can use their own voice to speak for them later on in their disease. And then when they can't move their upper extremities and, and can't phonate any longer, they can actually use eye tracking software to spell out what they want to say. And you can imagine it takes longer, but it allows them to communicate. So a lot of cool tech gadgets that are available not just here, but at um, other centers. Yeah, I, I was definitely just fascinated by the breadth of adaptive equipment that was available. Are there any opportunities for physiatrists to be involved in non-directly clinical opportunities, for example, with like prosthetic development or adaptive tool development in medicine as well? Absolutely. So I, when I, I train a lot of uh, residents, and what I really like to talk about with the future physicians is thinking, thinking about what 
areas you're interested in outside of just clinical medicine. So I expect anyone who trains with me to be a great clinician and to come out really ready to go be an amazing doctor. But I do think it's important to think about how we can contribute to the medical field outside of just being a good doctor, not to downplay that at all. Um, and in some people within academic physiatry, that may be research. And some of that is like what you're talking about, device development, you know, looking at the latest and greatest technology. Uh, there is a lot of great work going on with um, uh, artificial intelligence and, you know, uh, remote control devices and how we can control uh, wheelchairs and using robotics for stroke recovery. A lot of stuff that I don't truly understand, um, but hope to <laughs> integrate into my practice in the future. Um, and so there's many opportunities depending on where you practice and depending on your background and depending on your interests. Um, other things that people may choose to pursue along with physical medicine and rehabilitation, there's a big interest in um, equity and advocacy for patients with disabilities and uh, students with disabilities and integrating more disability content into the medical school level. Um, my personal area of interest is medical education, so I'm very involved with the um, undergraduate medical education within disability at Northwestern and also with resident education um, at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. And then there's many other options, leadership, uh, owning your own small, you know, uh, your own medical practice, global health, uh, safety, um, quality improvements, and many options. Now, well, now that you've convinced all of us to select physiatry as a residency choice, I, I'd like to learn about how, how we can get in. So my first question is, if we're students three clinical years, what we could do to uh, get Interested, interest in the field. Um, I don't know if you want to mention the externship that your program has, and after preclinical years, maybe year three and four, uh, what we can do as well. I think the most important thing early on in medical school is really career exploration. So really getting a sense of, you know, what you're interested in is physical medicine and rehabilitation right for you. So if you can mm -hmm. do an externship between the first and second year of medical school, um, either through our program, through the um, Association of Academic Physiatry has several programs, it's a great way to get an early exposure to the field and get a sense of whether or not it's a good fit for you. Obviously, in the COVID era, that makes things a little bit more challenging. Uh, getting in for some early shadowing is a great um, idea as well. Also thinking about how you want to um, tailor your application a little bit, I think can be helpful. It's not quite as strict as medical school applications in terms of you need service hours, you need you know, clinical exposure, you need research, um, but really thinking about what your areas of interest are within medicine and getting involved in, in things. You know, can you do something within leadership? Do you have a long-term volunteer interest? Do you have a research interest? Within physiatry, we know that people find the field at different times. So some people go to med school knowing they want to do it, and some people don't find it until the end of their third year. So we don't expect everyone to have research experience in PM&R. We don't expect everyone to have volunteer um, activities with people with disabilities. But if it is something that you're finding early, then I absolutely encourage you to get involved with the Special Olympics or um, adaptive sports or, you know, event coverage for, for sports and really get a sense of kind of some of the volunteer activities that can kind of teach you a little bit about the patient population that you want to serve. And then uh, for rotations, for institutions that might not have a seminar rotation, would you also encourage those applicants to seek one out? Absolutely. So every student applying into the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation needs to do at least one PM&R rotation. I encourage everyone to rotate with uh, a rotation that allows you to do inpatient rehabilitation. Even if your area of interest is really more pain, sports medicine, musculoskeletal, outpatient, I really look to make sure that students know what they're getting themselves into because the inpatient training is a very important part of our residency program. And even if you plan to graduate and never do it, I want to make sure that you have witnessed it and know you know, what to expect going into a residency program. So, you know, you really only have to have one rotation at a minimum, but I do think in general, getting to see some different 
areas of this very um, varied field can be useful. So if you have the opportunity to do an outpatient rotation and an inpatient rotation, I think that would be great, um, is not required. Gotcha. And how can uh, students stand out in PMR rotations? So in the actual PMR rotation, coming in and knowing that you are really putting yourself out there to get into this field, so show up and commit to doing your very best. So what does that really mean? So I want a student who's willing to take ownership of their patients to act like an intern. So if the patient has a complaint, go evaluate it, think about what what it could be, come up with a differential diagnosis, and then present me with a plan. Tell me what you want to do with this patient. If the patient has a traumatic brain injury and they have agitation, for example, you may not know the latest and greatest recommendation for agitation management and brain injury. Honestly, I don't know the latest and greatest treatments for traumatic brain injury since it's not something I see regularly. But, you know, take a minute to look it up if you have the time. You know, think about, gosh, what could be potential treatments? Is there anything I could do, you know, in terms of, atmosphere, medications, you know, what are the different things, and then present that. We don't expect you to, to know everything. You're a medical student. You're not, you know, a senior resident in physiatry, but really trying to um, manage the patients to the best of your ability with appropriate supervision, and I think that goes a long way. Also, showing up with an interest to learn, ask about feedback, ask a lot of questions, show your interest, and really go out of your way to, you know, interact in a positive way with everyone that you meet. And I'm curious, once you get past that stage, you know, you're applying to residency, how would you su suggest students either select what residency they're applying to or have any sort of algorithm for what type of training they can have? I don't know how much discrepancy there is, for example, between an academic residency versus a community hospital residency. Um, all residency programs in physical medicine and rehabilitation have standard requirements from the ACGME in terms of how many um, months of inpatient training, how many months of outpatient training, how many procedures need to be done. So there are definitely consistencies across all programs. So I think about first is geography. You know, where do you want to be geographically? Are there certain cities or regions that you need to think about? So that's one of the most important things when it comes to resident rank list is thinking about that. Um, and then I would also think about, you know, what if you have an idea of what you want to do as a subspecialty within the field, uh, think about that. So if you want to be a traumatic brain injury physiatrist, then make sure you're looking at programs that are strong and have a larger department of larger number of faculty members who are interested in the same thing that you're interested in. And then the other thing to think about really is this nebulous term called fit, right? So where, where do you feel at home? Where do you feel comfortable? Where do you feel like these are my people? Um, you want a residency program where you're going to get along with the other residents um, and you're going to have a good relationship with your program director and your faculty. And when you're interviewing those residents, are there any things they can do to be good interviewees, maybe have a working background knowledge on anything uh, about the institution they're interviewing at? The most important thing um, if you're interviewing for the field of PM&R is really that you've been thoughtful about applying into it. So making sure that you really understand what the field of PM&R is. Come ready to discuss several different patients that you've seen that kind of exemplify PM&R for you. Uh, think about um, communication because communication skills are so important in our field. So practice interview skills. Think about examples of times when you've struggled to communicate or you've really done well to communicate uh, and come ready to discuss those kinds of things. For our osteopathic students that listen to this podcast, um, I know they have a complex exam uh, in addition to the option of taking the USMLE exam. Would you, uh, do you have any preference for what exam they take or do you have any suggestions for taking one over the other? Well, I suggest I take the COMLEX exam as I think it's required for their graduation. <laughs> um, and uh, then I, in terms of whether or not they need to additionally take the USMLE tests, um, it is optional and up to them. I would say 
I would say that the majority do end up taking both sets of examinations. It's certainly not required at my institution for them to take both. I cannot speak to other institutions if they find it useful to have both sets of examinations. But it wouldn't actually be a disservice to them to not take the USMLE. I don't think so. Again, at my institution, it would not be a disservice at all. Gotcha. And there are, and we kind of touched on this already, but um, if there were any kind of general personality traits of PMR that you would use to describe the field. One thing that I think is really important is that ability to communicate. So we work with large teams with our, uh, you know, speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, dietitians, respiratory therapists, psychologists, social workers, care managers, prosthetists, orthotists, um, phlebotomists. I'm sure I'm missing uh, many other people. But as, as a physicians, we are the leader of that team. So it's our job to be able to communicate with each and every member of that team, bring all that information together, and use that to make decisions about the team. And so being able to communicate not just with those members of the team, but also the therapists, the family members, the people that are on, you know, helping to support the patient in their own lives um, is just huge. So I think that's one of the biggest things uh, that makes a good resident. And finally, do you have any advice for uh, medical students, uh, pre-meds even, or even residents, you know, pursuing the field of physiatry or how, uh, deciding uh, what branch or algorithm they should use when picking uh, something in medicine? So I think that the most important thing is that you, as a medical student, as a, as a resident, even as a young faculty member, is being open to trying different things because you may be surprised at what actually ends up being a good fit for you. Um, you know, early on in medical school, I found the field of physical medicine and rehabilitation, and I went through the rest of my rotations trying to see if there was something that was a better fit for me, and I really didn't find anything. So I was lucky in that I, I found this field relatively early. Um, but then I went into residency thinking, oh, I've, I've got it. I'm going to do sports medicine. And I went to my sports medicine clinics and I, it, it just didn't, it didn't feel right to me. It didn't, I didn't have the love for it that I thought that I should have. And uh, when it came down to it, I really just felt so comfortable and, and, and happy in the inpatient setting. And I thought maybe it was just because oh, I had done, you know, a third year medicine rotation, a fourth year medicine rotation, all those medicine rotations as an intern. And so it was just where, you know, I had just worked more in that setting. Um, but the truth was I thrive on that long-term relationship, seeing the same patient every day, working with the same nurses, working with the same therapists. I love having my team right there with me. And you do have a little bit more flexibility in your day when you're on inpatient because you can do rounds and then you can go stop and get your coffee, you know. Um, whereas when you're seeing patients like back-to-back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back -to -back clinic patients, you're kind of locked in. You don't have that freedom to kind of wander off. Um, my inpatients are still there, so I can go back and see them and check on them again in an hour or in two hours if I want to. And so I, I love that team. I love that flexibility. And I kind of love the challenge of, of seeing these really sick patients and getting to see them kind of recover and, and uh, get back to health. And, and so um, it's really important to keep an open mind because if I had just kind of continued down my pathway, I would have missed this great opportunity to be an inpatient physiatrist. And then as, you, know, you don't have to get settled into something even after you graduate. So I uh, graduated and I started in, in uh, clinical medicine and then I kind of said yes to opportunities as they came up and it has led me into this medical education career that has really made it for me. So the fact that I get to do something really interesting clinically and I get to then spend the rest of my time working in the education sector has really made being an academic physiatrist really worthwhile for me. So I'll ask one more question. But just because you mentioned being in uh, medical education, I think uh, for me, I, I, I really enjoyed the academic environment, but I don't know how interested I was in research. So if I am interested or if a student's interested in careers where they want to teach, but not necessarily do research, do they, uh, is it recommended they do like an academic uh, residency instead or of a community residency or does it kind of just matter which one do after training? 
So if you're interested in teaching or education as part of your career, I do think you're going to be better served doing a residency in a more academic setting. The reason is it gives you access to faculty members who are more interested in teaching and are maybe going to teach you how to be a teacher, right? And then you're also going to have more of an opportunity to teach and to practice teaching because the best way to be a better teacher is to do it and so, you know, be thoughtful about it, but to have the experience of doing it. So um, at a, if you can do a residency program at an institution that has a strong medical student presence, then you're going to have that built into your day-to-day -day workflow and will let you really experience that more as a resident, which can help you make some of your decisions when you're looking for a job. Well, Dr. Edward, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I think we had a lot of great information. And I hope this was a helpful episode for anyone interested in PM&R. Thanks for listening to this episode. Subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media to get notifications about new episodes. The views and opinions expressed by guests and hosts on this podcast are their own and do not represent the various community and professional organizations to which the speaker might belong. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with another episode in two weeks.